Please take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Just a, a few housekeeping matters. Um, we're going to hit the pause button on our study of Ephesians starting next week to pick up a, a Christmas series on the subject of worship. And so um, we're going to look at the four songs at the beginning of the book of Luke and just look at what... Uh, true gospel worship is, and um, reading and studying those um, songs over the last several years has been such a blessing to me, and I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to share that with you starting next week um, for the next four weeks. Um, we're going to pick up our study of the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 17, down to the end of the chapter. As always, I, I, I study these chapters, or I study these sections, and I think, man, I could get like three sermons out of these, but, um, but I don't want to like weary you. Uh, you know, I have a rule, I, I kind of teach a series every six months, and I try to be done with it um, at the end of six months. I've found that that's as much as you can bear with people, you know, they, they kind of track with you for about six months, and after that, they're like, why are we studying the book of Ephesians again? I, I don't know, I've lost the overall theme. But um, So I'm going to try to keep it right at six months, but we're going to take a pause for December. All right, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the living God. Now this I say and testify to the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put off falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion and it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you." All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, 
But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you now uh, for your word. Thank you for the way it speaks to us. And thank you for the blessing that your word is to our hearts. Come now and unite, uh, Holy Spirit, uh, God's word to the hearts of the people here. And may we all walk away a little bit more changed than when we first came in. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let me take a small drink of water. Um, ooh. All right. <laughs> Choking myself to death on water right before I preach. Um, I, I want to talk to you today about something that's near and dear to my heart, and that's the subject of biblical change. How is it that you and I change? Now, all of us inside here today have things about us that we want to change. Some of us, that change is physical. You know, maybe we want to drop a few pounds, or maybe we want to change the way we look. But the kind of change that's being mentioned here is not external change, but internal change. And in the recesses of your own mind, all of us have some things about us that we know we need to change but we feel like we don't have the power to do it. In this passage, Paul talks about what biblical change ought to be. And it's actually pretty powerful and instructive. You know, uh, in the providence of God over the last, I, I don't know, two or three months, I've had the privilege of sitting in front of people and they um, have talked to me about how Christ has gloriously changed their life. I was talking to a young man recently I met. I just randomly met him. At, uh, I was out doing something. And all of a sudden, I ran into this man and started talking to him. And next thing you know, I'm having coffee with him. And we're, we're talking about the gospel and how Christ glorious change, gloriously changed his life. And I was sitting down there, and all of a sudden, tears started flowing out of my eyes. And it was kind of awkward. Two men sitting down. One talking to the other, and the other has tears flowing down their eyes. I could imagine what the people were thinking. Um, I'm not going to get into all of it, but as I was sitting there and I was listening to this, a glorious thought struck me that I can't think of another philosophy or religion or, or way of thinking that has the power to change the deep fundamental issues in all of our lives like the gospel. I have heard nothing else in all my reading, in all my years of studying, in all my years of sitting in a classroom, all the podcasts I've listened to, all of the lectures I've, I've heard about how someone changes. I've heard nothing like the, the gospel and the power that it has to change a human being. And as I listened to this man talk, it struck me about the unique power of the gospel to change the life, not just of this man, but of me and of you and of everyone else that we know. And what struck me more than anything else is that the gospel has the power to change us in, in two ways. The first time we started having the conversation, he started talking, he told me about how the gospel changed him from darkness into light. 
And that's what happens if you're saved. That's what the gospel does. By the way, that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. If you notice the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about two fundamental changes that happens in our life. First one is Ephesians 2. That's at the point of justification. You are gloriously changed. You are taken out of darkness and you've put in the light. But now in chapter 4, Paul talks about another kind of change, and that's the kind of change that happens as a result of sanctification. Biblical writers talk about a lot. Do you realize, if you read through the Gospels, if you read through the Bible in general, the Bible talks very little about social change. The Bible talks very little about how the Gospel changes Governments. The Bible talks outside of maybe Romans 13 and a few small verses. The Bible tells us little about how the gospel actually changed society, how the gospel helps with poverty and the like. But you know what the gospel spends a ton of time talking about? How to change us. How to change our mouths so we're not liars and we don't have corrupting um, speech coming out of us. The Bible talks a lot about how, how to deal with your marriage. The Bible talks a lot about how you treat the people around you. The Bible spends a ton of time on the little everyday mundane things that happen in our life. Why? I don't know if you know this, but the hardest thing to change in the world is you and your nature. You're the hardest thing in the world to change. To get your mind and your heart to think only about the gospel and Christ, that's the hardest thing in the world. That's why the Bible says that the power of the gospel is not, board, is not board, uh, brought to bear on governments or, or on social situations. The power of the gospel is brought to bear on you and what you say and your lack of forgiveness, and your lack, and your incalcitrance towards the things of God. That's what the power of the gospel is brought to bear on. Your hearts, because your heart is the toughest, hardest, most difficult thing in the world to change. All of us in here today are some of the most resistant things to change, and that's why you and I struggle. That's why it's so hard for you and I to actually live the Christian life. Because at the end of the day, no matter what happens, you and I are resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's why the biblical writers talk about it so much. That's why Paul talks about it so much. Because deep down, it takes a lot to change you. And you know this to be the case. How many of us have tried to deal with our anger with very little success? How many of you sitting down here have tried to deal with issues of pornography and lust with very little success? How many of you inside here today have tried to deal with your, your, your pettiness or, or the way you think about people, your bad attitudes? You go down the line. How many of you have tried and failed? It's because we don't understand the nature of biblical change. Now, let me give you a disclaimer from the very beginning, because that's what we're going to talk about today, just briefly. And it's this. I'm not going to give you seven steps to better you here today. That's not what this passage is about. I'm not going to give you a bunch of tips and, and strategies of how to deal with the sin in your life, because that's not how the Bible works, not, not in the slightest. I'm here to tell you today this one fact. 
Biblical change is hard. Biblical change is messy. It's complicated. It hurts. It's costly. It's discouraging. And biblical change is not perfection. In fact, biblical change doesn't happen overnight. It is the constant pursuit of Jesus Christ and his righteousness daily and often. That's how you and I change. This is not a quick fix for what's wrong with you. This is a call to follow Christ completely and fully and daily despite your failures and your inability to do it, knowing full well that the gospel has the power to change you as long as you continue to pursue it. That's what this passage is about today. And let me say this, that's why each and every one of us inside here today need to be gracious toward one another. You know, I went to an institution that the moment you mess up, they got all over you. And they branded you a sinner. And they put you down if you sinned even in the slightest. And that almost wrecked my faith. And if CVPC is going to be the gospel community that God calls us to be, one of the first things we need to do is bear with one another. Because listen to me, change is hard. None of us are going to be perfect. We're going to fail, and we're going to fail often. But one of the things that defines a gospel community is even in the midst of our failures, even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst of us constantly missing the mark, change will come. Amen? I know that's a song. I borrowed it on purpose. It's the title of my sermon. But I want to encourage you right off the bat, change will come. We just need to have the grace that God requires to allow it to work in and through us. That's, that's the message of the gospel. Now, how does biblical change happen? I, I want to say three things here, and I could say more, but I'm going to limit myself to three things, and here they are. I want to talk about why it's impossible for a non-Christian to change. Why it's impossible for a non-Christian to change. Why it's possible only for the Christian to change. And how we can, by God's grace, change. Those are the three things that I want to talk about today. First of all, why it's impossible for non-Christians to change. Now, there are many of you inside here today who would say, Pastor Dennis, that, that's a hard-line statement. How do you mean that unbelievers, it's impossible for them to change? I have friends that are unbelievers. I have relatives that are unbelievers. And they've undergone remarkable change. They've stopped drinking. They've stopped smoking. They've, they've stopped cheating on their wife. I mean, they have undergone tremendous change. Isn't it kind of arrogant for Christians to say that it's impossible for an unbeliever to change? No, it's not arrogant. It's actually biblical. You, most of you remember, if you're, if you're familiar with the Bible, most of you remember a Pharisee came to Jesus and they were tempting him and they asked him this question. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? You remember what Jesus says? Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your what? Soul. That's the greatest commandment. It's not just the greatest commandment, but in the brilliance of Jesus... He's telling us all the ways in which the gospel actually changes you. The gospel actually changes your heart. The gospel changes your mind. 
and the gospel changes your soul. Why is that important? Because from every book I've read and every unbeliever I've, I've uh, looked after or, or followed, the one area in the world today, the one area they focus on change the most is guess what? Just the mind. If you read a book, um, uh, if you just pick up a book on a sh off the shelf by an unbeliever and the book is How Do We Change? It focuses strictly on the mind and what you should think and how you should change your, your thinking and your behavior. Never on the heart and the will and the emotions. Never. Uh, recently, I was listening to an atheist, and the atheist talked about how he spent um, many years studying theology. He went to Oxford, and he studied Christian theology. And he said that after he studied theology, Christian theology, he realized that Christianity was um, false and that he didn't need it. And as I was listening to him talk, I said, you know, th this is the problem with atheists. And to be honest, this is the problem sometimes with Christian. We make Christianity cognitive, and that's it. All we focus on in the mind, and especially as Reformed folks, for us, it's all about what we know. And if we know the right things, if we believe the right things, then that makes us godly. But hear me today, even if you know all the right things, that still doesn't make you godly. That still doesn't impact change. Because the gospel calls us to change, not just in our minds and what you know, but in your heart and in your soul to the level of what you do. See, the fact of the matter is, you could know as much as you want to know about God, as much as you could fit into your brain. But if it doesn't change you in your deep inside your heart to where you desire new things, if it doesn't change you and go deeper to where you now actually have the desire to do and perform the righteousness of Christ, it matters nothing. Same thing with this atheist. He spent all these years learning about Christianity, but it did him nothing because it didn't travel down to his heart and ultimately what they do. And I hear Christians make the same mistake. Some of you inside here today, you've been Christians for a long time. You, you've been a Christian almost your whole entire life. You know more about the gospel and the Bible than I do. And yet, you're still filled with bitterness, unforgiveness. Your tongue still, in, still hasn't come underneath the lordship of Christ. You still don't serve God with your actions. Why? Because for you, it's all cognitive, and it hasn't seeped in to your heart and to what you do. One of the great tragedies of the American church is we've made the gospel all about what we know and not all about the reality of our hearts and our actions being changed by the power of the gospel. And I'm here to tell you today that true gospel change has to happen on all three levels. Why? Because we're broken in all three levels. Look at our text. Notice what, what Paul says. Paul says, first of all, the, um, our brokenness is found in our minds. He said, we no longer walk as the Gentiles do, and the futility of our minds, that our minds have been dark, uh, darkened and our understanding severely hampered, so that's the first place we see brokenness, in our minds. But not only that, Paul says um, in verse number 18, 
that all of this, our ignorance toward God is due to the hardness of your heart. So there you see it, mind, heart. But notice the will. In verse number 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy. Underline that word greedy. That's at the level of our actions, what we desire. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice key what Paul says. Unbelief and brokenness happens on the level of the mind, happens on the level of the heart, and happens at the level of the soul, deep down. And so it's not enough for you to know more about the gospel. In order to reverse the deep flaws in our mind, in our heart, and in our soul, we need the gospel to touch all three. And unless the gospel has touched all three, you are left untouched. And that's why you have so many Christians. They can be saved for 30 years. They can know all kinds of scriptures and know every aspect of the gospel. But yet if you look at their lives, they're virtually unchanged. Unchanged. Why? Because the gospel hasn't seeped into every aspect of their life, their emotions and what they do. That's why Paul begins this way, that the gospel has to touch us there. And that's why unbelievers can't change fully. And that's why I fear so many of us in the church won't change fully unless we allow the gospel to seep down deep into these areas. Now, here's the second thing, why it's possible for Christians to change. I want you to notice two phrases in verse number 20 down to verse number 24. The first is this. Paul says in verse number 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Underline that. And then drop down to verse number 30, where he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you were sealed unto the day of redemption. Underline, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. And here's why those two things are important. Scholars tell us that there's no language like this language outside of the New Testament. This deeply personal language. Look at with me where it says, you have not so learned Christ. Everywhere outside of the Bible and even inside of the Bible, every time you see the word learned, it's always in connection with a philosophy or a book, never in connection with a person. And even when it talks about and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, There is no other language outside of Christianity that says we grieve the creator. None. Only in Christian theology do we see this language of learning Christ and grieving the Holy Spirit. What does that communicate to us? That our faith is deeply personal. It's about a person and being in relationship with a person. That's how you and I change. We learn Christ. And because we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we're grieved whenever we grieve him, whenever we sin. Let me show you this on a practical level. Let's let's like get deeply practical here. What does it mean to learn Christ? It means to learn from him and of him. It means to learn how to act. It means to learn how to live. It means to live righteously. Uh, All of us inside here as parents know this. We spend a lot of time training and teaching our children, amen? And I remember, uh, you know, as a parent, sometimes you take your children somewhere, and and for whatever reason, they they use uh, an inappropriate word. Let's say a four-letter word. 
And in the midst of them using this bad word, everybody kind of looks at you and says, oh, I know where they learned that from. You know, you're like, man, I was, ugh. you know, they didn't learn that from me and maybe their mother, but not me, you know, like, or their father, however that works out. But you all that have children know that to be the case. Or your children does something, you're like, where did you learn that from? Where did you learn to hit the other person like that? Where did you learn to act like that? All of us that are parents have experienced that before. And we know that to be the case. Here's what Paul's saying in essence. When you sin, when you, when you lie, when you steal, when you're angry without a cause, when, you, when you're bitter, when you use corrupt um, uh, ways of speaking, you didn't learn that from Christ. Christ never taught that to you. And if anything, Paul says, you're not acting according to what Christ wants you to do and the way Christ wants you to live. That's what he means by you have not learned Christ. He's saying that Christ never leads us in those directions. And we're doing something contrary to the will of God. What is this matter of grieving the Holy Spirit? It's based on the same principle. The Holy Spirit is grieved by our actions and what we do. I've had, um, in my time in ministry, I've, t- I've spoken, and, and I want you to notice this because I think this is powerful. Notice it doesn't say that um, do not make the Holy Spirit angry, do not make the Holy Spirit frustrated, do not make this Holy Spirit mad, but do not grieve the Holy Spirit, and that's intentional. And here's why. In my ministry, I've spoken to a lot of parents whose children have walked away from the Lord. And, and there's some of you inside here today, you have children that have walked away from the Lord. And every parent that I've spoken to, almost without exception, they're not angry. They're not frustrated. If anything, they're grieved. Because they love their children. And they so desire to see their children come to know Christ and come to love Christ. That, it, that they're not angry. They're grieved. And that's the proper response. To anyone who has walked away from Christ, that's the proper response the Holy Spirit has toward all those who are not walking the way Christ wants them to walk in all holiness. They're grieved, not angry, not frustrated. When you and I sin, it's not like God is up in heaven with a big stick looking at us saying, how could you? How dare you? You're the worst uh, person in the world. That's not what God says of anything. The Bible says he's legitimately grieved that you're spurning the grace and the power of the gospel in your life. And by the way, parents, that's our response to our children's sin. To be grieved and to pray and ask the Lord to bring them back from where they've strayed. It's this intimate, deep relationship that causes us to come back into union and fellowship with the Lord. Now, how does real change happen? And man, this is so powerful. Paul talks about how real change happens from verse 25 on down. And the first thing Paul says is this, real gospel change happens when our desires change. I want you to go back. I I know I mentioned 25, but I want you to go back up. And Paul makes this statement. In verse number 22, he says that um, through Christ, he helps us to put, um, he says, to put off 
your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And here's it at the beginning of verse number 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Underline that because that is the beginning and the key of how real change happens. Now, what does Paul mean by being renewed in the spirit of our minds? It literally means to have a change of mind and a change of attitude towards our sins. Let me explain it like this. Uh, there might be a few of you inside you today that would kill you. Anything inside here? Don't tell us, don't tell us what you want. Don't, don't tell me what it is. But maybe there's one or two of you. I was on an airplane one time and um, the stewardess came on, or flight attendant, however you call it, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be disrespectful, and, and, uh, and they came on and said, please do not eat any peanuts because someone on you has a peanut allergy, and they could die. And I was like, man, this is unfair. I like peanuts, you know, now I can't get served peanuts because somebody in here would die from peanuts. But that's fine, right? But hear me today, imagine if you love peanuts, and all of a sudden you found out you couldn't eat peanuts. Because if you ate peanuts, you would die. Imagine how your whole life then will be reconstructed so you don't come into contact with peanuts. Does that make sense? It doesn't have to be peanuts. For some of us inside your day, we found out that we're gluten intolerant. So, so for that matter, we can't eat uh, anything with gluten inside of it. And so what do we do? We reconstruct our whole lives so we don't eat gluten. And there's some of you inside here today, you found out you can't eat red meat. Um, and uh, I'm sorry that that's the case, but you can't eat red meat. And so what do you do? You reconstruct your entire life. Same thing with dairy. You found out you can't eat dairy. So you have no dairy in your home. Here's the point that Paul is saying. If you truly understand that your sin has the power to destroy you, like a piece of food has the power to destroy you, then you'll reconstruct your life to change your mind and your heart to where you no longer desire or want those things. And look, we understand that physically, but we never make that leap spiritually. If you truly believe that sin has the power to corrupt your heart, mind, and soul, then you'll do everything that you can to try and stay away from it. Just like if you found out you had an allergy to a piece of food or, or, or peanuts or something like that, you do everything you can to stay away from it. That's what Paul means, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Think differently about your sin. The second thing that Paul says is this, that's so powerful, and how you begin to change, is the way to change thoroughly and completely is when you intentionally put off one behavior and put on another. Notice what he says in verse 25. Therefore, having put off falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one body. Now, this is key. This is key. The way you deal with biblical change in your life is to just not stop doing something without starting to do something. Again, there, there are so many people, and I grew up in churches where everything was just stop it. Stop lying, stop stealing, stop doing all of these things. But they never told me to put on anything, right? But notice in the text, and the text is clear, how do you put away falsehood? 
You don't put away falsehood by stop lying. You put, you put away falsehood by telling the truth to your neighbor. That's how you put away falsehood. You don't, you don't put away um, stealing by stop stealing. You put away stealing by working and providing for the other. See, both go hand in hand. If you put off without putting on, you know what that leads to? Legalism. You spend all your time stopping bad behavior, but you don't spend any of your time adding good behaviors in its place. That's legalism. But what happens if you don't stop bad behavior, but you try to put on righteousness? Think of it like clothing, right? Imagine if you go and work out and you get dirty and nasty from your workout, but then you just walk into your closet and put on clean clothes over it. You'll stink. And that's one of the reasons somebody say amen. <laughs> like, like he's tried it or she's tried it. <laughs> but you know that to be the case. When, when we tell our children, change your clothes, it's for a reason. Because if you put on clean clothes over dirty clothes, you will stink. And that's what happens. If we don't tell people about their sin and the need for them to put off lying, put off anger, put off stealing... And we just tell them, put on goodness or put on righteousness or put on working and don't stop the bad behavior. That leads to hypocrisy. And each and every one of us inside here knows what hypocrisy looks like. You not only have to put off, but the gospel calls you to put on. Put on. Both are needed if we're going to have biblical change. The third one is this. Real gospel change happens when we see how our actions become a blessing to others. Notice, after every action that Paul gives, he gives the reason for it. He says here, um, I, I, and I mean, I don't have time to go through all of it, but you in your private study need to go all of it, but I'll show you a few. Notice he says, put off falsehood in verse number five, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one, one another. What does he mean there? He means this, when, as a gospel community, when we speak the truth to one another, we build a healthy and strong community of believers. And then notice, he says in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Here's what he's saying. When you and I get angry and we remain angry, we provide an opportunity for division and dissension in the body. So it's when we deal with our anger quickly, when we address the nature of our anger uh, quickly, we, we don't give any place to the devil. And go on and on. Stealing, same thing. Why is it important for us to stop stealing and start working honestly? So we may be able to provide for those who desperately need it. Do you see how Paul says that when you and I do what is right before the Lord, everyone gets blessed as a result of it. Everyone gets blessed as a result of it. And the final one is this. Real gospel change happens when we turn over every area of our lives to Christ. Every area. Notice how comprehensive this list is. Paul talks about lying and anger and stealing and corrupt um, thought. He talks about bitterness, wrath, anger. Then he talks about um, un, uh, not forgiving, not being tender-hearted. Uh, put away slander and clamor and all these things. Th this is a comprehensive list, list of every area of your life. And so Paul says every area of your life has to be turned over to Christ. 
Um, I read a book recently. It was a book recommended to me by someone. Actually, it's not even really a book. It's a pamphlet. You could get the pamphlet online. It's called My Heart Christ Closet. Anybody ever read that? My Heart Christ Closet. You could actually get it for free online, so don't pay for it, right? And it's, it's an allegory. It's an allegory of Christ coming into someone's heart. And, and the way the story goes is that this person begins to take Christ to every area of his life. You know, his, his mind, um, his heart, you know, and different rooms in his house. And, and, and the very last one is this closet. And, and the man says, don't go in that closet. And, and Christ says, why? Why don't you want me to go in the closet? And, and all of a sudden, um, Christ smells the closet stinking. And there's putrid scent coming from the closet. And, and he doesn't want Christ to go in the closet because in the closet, he's hidden all of, of the sins that he knows that he needs to address in his life. And, and Christ says, if you don't want me to go into that closet, I can't be Lord of your life. You have to let me go into the closet. And so reluctantly, he lets Christ go into the closet, and he was right. It, it was stinky. It was dirty. But, but slowly, Christ begins to clean out the closet. And it's a beautiful allegory, and here's why. All of you inside here today have areas of your life you haven't fully given over to Christ. You have a closet, and there's some really stinky things in there. And I don't know what they are, but you know what they are. You know that you've tried to give Christ some things, but there's some things that are in the closet you're afraid to give over. And Christ tells you all the same thing. He cannot be Lord of your life unless he has access even to the stinky closet. And so I'm asking you today, what's in your closet? What are all the things that you're shutting up that you don't want Christ to have access to? You see, what you don't understand is that God already knows what's in that closet. You're not fooling him at all. But you see, in order for him to have complete lordship over your life, you have to give him access to it. How do you do that? The Bible says by putting off through the power of the Holy Spirit saying, Christ, I know that my mouth is a problem. What I watch is a problem. The way I spend my money is a problem. The way I think about people is a problem. And I need you to have full access to that area of my life because I want to be changed completely. And yes, I know your closet's messy and it's stinky and you don't want anyone to go in there. But unless he has access to your life, every area of your life, you will not experience true and lasting biblical change. And my encouragement today as your pastor is to say this. There are times in my life where I had to allow Christ into that closet. And I can tell you it was pretty messy. It's pretty painful. It was pretty hard. But I've not regretted it. Turn over the whole house to him and watch what he can do. Father, I thank you so much for the power of the gospel and that you're in the business of changing each and every one of us in here today. Lord, I know that for so many of us here, we have closets that are walled off from you. 
I pray that you might give us all the grace to continue to open up that closet and allow you to clean it out. Lord, I pray for the one here that um, hasn't experienced a biblical change of regeneration by putting complete faith and trust in Christ. May they do that today. But I also pray for the Christian that's still holding out. Give them the grace to hand everything over to you. Bless now, I pray, in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.